This is the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIPC. Good evening and welcome to the Tony Kinnett Cast. I'm Tony Kinnett and boy, there's quite a mess, so let's get right to it. The Washington Post staff has chosen to go on strike because they're upset that the Washington Post is not paying them more than they already were. According to the Washington Post Guild, they're striking after 18 months of bargaining. Guild workers including reporters, editors, cartoonists, visual journalists, advertising salespeople, and circulation drivers... Uh, will be walking out and they're they're very upset they're very you know complaining all these unfair practices how could you like ask someone to come in and cover breaking news and uh no one really has has come to their defense nobody cares um and that's because washington post subscriptions have gone down considerably in the last decade uh fewer people are reading the washington post uh than in quite some time and the washington post is feeling the pressure of failure because Um, it's really not worth paying journalists to write the same article over and over again. And quite honestly, it's absolutely hilarious. And the reason it's just absolutely hilarious is because this is the third group this year to go on strike over journalistic malpractice. Oh, they're not paying these left-wing journos with their bachelors in journalism majors to write all of these stories that aren't cited or sourced on anything whatsoever. And uh, I think locally, I think of the Indie Star, uh, which has been hemorrhaging subscribers uh, so horribly that uh, Gannett decided to cancel uh, the cell phone plans of those working in the Indie Star and uh, just womp womp, big shucky darn shame. Uh, it sounds like uh, things aren't going very well over there still. So the Indy Star decided to do what's called a byline strike. And a byline strike is when you remove your name from the top of your article so no one knows who wrote it. Oh, that'll show the star. And then uh, the journalists at the Indy Star, just like the journalists at the Washington Post, are discovering no one cares when their name's not at the top of a story or when someone doesn't write an article. And so the Indy News Guild gave up um, after a very short amount of time and went back to doing whatever it was until something new popped up, and that is nonprofit news guilds. So these little nonprofit news organizations have kind of been popping up in the Indiana area over the last couple of years and have been doing so around the country as this kind of corporate uh, left-leaning structure for newspaper and regional news has failed so abysmally. And uh, the problem is, in order to be a nonprofit news agency, you kind of have to report who's funding you. And uh, recently, uh, in Indiana, there is a new organization that has rebranded as Mirror Indy. Uh, So Mirror Indianapolis is going to be this new publication that, once again, just like the Capitol Chronicle, just like State Affairs, promises to be unbiased, promises to be uh, wholesome, hold government accountable, local news that focuses on the real issues that people care about. Uh, Because that's only been tried like four times in the last year and a half. Uh, The catch is they could not go two days publishing without already being kind of a leftist dump. And they're funded by uh, the American Journalism Project, the same project that funds left-wing education sites like Chalkbeat. Uh, And again, if you go and look at um, Mirror Indies, you know, about page, they'll tell you all about a lot of their funders. Again, you can't lie about who's funding you on the 990. And boy, I can't wait for the 2023 federal 990 forms to come out because it turns out that one 
organization staffed by left-wing journalists and those that are obsessed with pronouns and equity are just as bad as the next organization staffed with left-wing journalists that are focused on race and pronouns and equity. So uh, again, just nice to see another publication coming in to stake its claim. Uh, I'm still waiting for a piece of news from this organization. Uh, I loved the article on food carts. Uh, I'm sure that's exactly what this city needs. President Biden denies uh, text messages that he sent from his phone, which is just fantastic. Um, Today, the president was asked if he's ever had any business dealings with Hunter's business partners. And President Biden, who has spoken directly to those business partners who we have records of staying in the same place as the president in those areas, um, who the president has referred to several times before in the last 10 years, said that he's never known anyone. And, oh, I didn't even know that they existed. So excellent strategy. Fantastic. Um, Not really sure what you can expect out of a guy with extremely aggressive dementia at this point. Uh, But if Trump simply shuts his mouth, which is an incredibly difficult task, uh, Biden does not stand a chance in this next election. Um, It is all up to uh, Donald Trump and whether or not he wants to win. Uh, Speaking of the Washington Post, um, Shadi Hamid, a columnist and editorial board member for the Post, uh, was complaining that people were being just a little too mean um, at the, the Harvard and several other Ivy League presidents for not condemning statements like, you know, all Jews must die. Um, say, oh, there's got to be context to those kind of statements. And this Washington Post editor said, you know, a random student chanting an ethnic cleansing phrase might be offensive, but it's protected speech. Words aren't violence. Actual violence is violence. College isn't a place where you should expect to be protected from offensive things. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm all for making sure that an individual has the freedom to say whatever it is that you know they desire. But this crowd that's complaining right now, uh, just a couple of years ago, was whining that if you misgendered someone on campus, that this was an evil, horrible action of transphobia and transphobia and homophobia and kleptomaniaphobia. Who knows? So, as an example, I'd like to share with you an article from NBC News uh, just two years ago. Parkland survivor. Uh, has had his offer of admission rescinded from Harvard over, quote, offensive, unquote, comments. Kyle Kashev said the N-word in an online document when he was like 14 years old. And so Harvard uh, revoked his offer of admission. But now Harvard is rushing to the defense of those who call Jews, you know, the K-word and a lot of other racial slurs. So when it comes to being a progressive, the double standard of on racism is alive and well, absolutely well done. And uh, President Gay of Harvard couldn't even come out and actually condemn uh, any of those statements. Harvard had to release a statement after the fact and uh, said that uh, calls for violence against Jewish students are unacceptable. Um, The Ivy League school president couldn't say that in Congress. uh, But, you know, that's that's a lot to ask of somebody. Tonight's debate is planning to be Uh, Exactly the same as last night, or excuse me, the last GOP presidential debate. Not really sure if it's going to be different at all. Talking with Tyler O'Neill about that just a little bit, who's covering that this evening. Uh, We are going to be going into What You're Watching with Stephen Kent up next, as well as a host of other great content for you this evening. You are listening to the Tony Kinnacast on 93 WIBC. You're listening to the Tony Kennett Cast on 93 WIPC. 
Well, it's been a rough year at the box office for Disney, and that means that as we're angling into 2024, it's time to see kind of what's coming down the pike. Because uh, if it's not good enough, there could be some serious changes made at the corporate level. And for Disney, that means turning back to its cash cows. We're talking about Star Wars. We're talking about Marvel. And whenever we're talking about any of those good old-fashioned nerdy things, it's time to turn the segment over to Stephen Kent with What You Watching. He's the media director of the Consumer Choice Center, editor of GeekyStoics.com, and a contributor to Bounding Into Comics. So... Tell me, Stephen, what are we looking at here in 2024 and kind of cash cow moving for Star Wars? Is it going to be enough? Hit us. Yeah, so there is always change going on in the world of Star Wars and Lucasfilm. And so the latest is that uh, we have a, a change up to their 2024 slate of releases. There are shows, shows, shows being planned for Star Wars. People are very familiar with The Mandalorian at this point. Maybe five people in the country were watching Ahsoka, of which I am one of those five. Uh, and then there was, and then there was the effort of Star Wars prestige television, Andor, which followed Cassie and Andor, played by Diego Luna from the Rogue One standalone movie, a well liked movie, uh, but it also a very lowly watched show uh, that is being removed from the 2024 slate it is more likely going to be released in 2025 so if you are a lover of that prestige star wars television you're going to have to wait another year uh, the reasons for this uh, are unknown but i think it's safe to assume the sag afra strike uh, killed this show's production schedule and it I is think not that's, uh I think that's the first time that I've actually expressed sadness over that strike because mm -hmm. uh, Andor, is, I, like you say, you're one of the five people who watched Ahsoka. I feel like I'm one of the five people that watched Andor. It's got a, a very uh, high audience um, score over on mm -hmm. Rotten Tomatoes. Again, kind of a more low-key, in-the-depth of what's going on um, in the universe kind of show. And, uh, man, I tell you, I, I guess bittersweet because I don't want them to rush it and it to stink um, but also, I really wish that they were putting more of their time and effort into that show than cranking out more Mandalorian. Uh, so I got to get your thoughts. There's yeah. like the Acolyte that they've suggested and also Skeleton Crew. Uh, I, I, you're I'm not, not really you're sure not what hungry I agree for Jude Law in Star Wars. <laughs> I just yeah. don't know what to expect. I mean, what, where, where is the... I'm all for shows that don't incorporate the main characters. I am. I, I love yes. world building. I've always that's one of the reasons I like Tolkien. It's one of the reasons I like Robert Heinlein. But I, I guess I, I'm not really sure with how Disney has handled some things in the last couple of years how excited I am for an additional show. Like if they treat this like Marvel. Well, Tony, I think, like I think this will answer, you know, the thing that you are looking for, which is that uh, the skeleton crew at its best interpretation is taking place in the new Republic era. So that is the Mandalorian timeline after gotcha. the fall of the empire uh, with completely new characters. And what this show is going to basically be about uh, is some kind of thief or criminal um, criminal underlife to the to the to the galaxy, and it's going to follow Jude Law and a band of kind of troublemaking children. So sure. it's sort of been described as Goonies, but Star Wars. Uh, it could be really fun. Could be a great innocent adventure kind of show. I'm into the idea, but I'm always more excited about it when they are not 
messing with legacy characters, which they are also going to be avoiding in the Acolyte. The Acolyte is going to take us to the High Republic era, a new recent Star Wars Lucasfilm project, which is before The Phantom Menace. This Mm -hmm. could take us to the era of Darth Plagueis, uh, the master of Emperor Palpatine himself, uh, and tell us a little bit more about the Jedi before their corruption, which we saw play out in the prequel trilogy, which is kind of exciting. Uh, and and that kind of stuff is very interesting to me. I I'm still I, I still feel as though I'm looking for basically a I think I described it this way. We're on with Stephen Kent uh, from uh, Consumer Choice Center, Geeky Stoics, and batting into comics on what you're watching. By the way, uh, I'm really looking for. I've, I've heard it described as Mash, like the old sitcom Mash meets um, like Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like that, like for the Empire. I, I'm really seeing a lot of call in the last couple of years to just see more of like the glimpses that we get into why the Empire lasted as long as it did. You know, what is the good out of a out of a government that imposes order because uh, that was one of the lines in the mandalorian that everyone like really liked like well the empire also brings order it also brings um a lot of good things safety uh, that may have also been an andor as well there have been a couple of allusions to why people like the empire i think it's kind of an easy move to make uh, i'm i don't feel like it's one of those things where everyone you know would certainly like to see some kind of a movie and they paint a picture in their head of what it could be. I don't know. What do you think? Is there a hunger for something like this? Or are we going to keep getting yet another ragtag group of whoever's? So I think that there is a hunger for that amongst the Star Wars fan faithful. They love stories about both sides of the Imperial and Rebel conflict. They love to know a little bit more about the bad guys. And I would say that I think Andor sort of scratches that itch for people who really want to know, A, how the Empire really works. What is its bureaucracy like? How do they manage to control all the star systems of the galaxy? Andor tells us all about that. Uh, The problem is that it's not a family-friendly show. Uh, That's true. It's not that the content is ugly or particularly violent. You're just not going to see a five-year-old rush into the room excited because a new episode is out. It's more Star Wars for adults, which, speaking of Star Wars for adults, Mm -hmm. uh, recently, Ben Shapiro and Critical Drinker um, so a political commentator and a movie critic sat down and they ranked Star Wars uh, Star Wars movies from their favorite to the least favorite. So here's Ben's uh, list. He puts Empire Strikes Back as the, the best movie. Kind of a bland, usual take there. Then Come A on. New Hope. Then Rogue One, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then he has Return of the Jedi, then Revenge of the Sith, and then Attack of the Clones, Solo, The Phantom Menace, and then Rise of Skywalker, Force Awakens, and Last Jedi. I got to tell you, my biggest issue with that entire list is that the Phantom Menace is number eight. Because mm, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's as bad as. I mean, it's not great, but I think the Phantom Menace is nowhere near as bad as some of the things he ranked above it. Absolutely, the Phantom Menace gets a bad rap, uh, and it's always because of Jar Jar Binks. And frankly, I just got to tell you, like once you block it out, once you learn oh, right, to ignore it, it's really it, decent it's a, movie. It's a very decent movie, and it is really, I think, the perfect blend of the old and new Star Wars. That movie doesn't suffer from the special effects overload of Episodes two and three by George That's Lucas. That's a great point. The yeah. Phantom Menace is the golden era, nineteen ninety nine. A little bit of puppetry, practical effects, and some special effects to make Naboo and those space battles even better. I think it's a perfectly done movie and you know, I 
people want to focus on Jar Jar, that's uh, that's their that's their thing. Uh, there are, there are a lot of issues to you know to kind of bring to bear, but sometimes I feel like that gets into nitpicking territory. So, all right, let me hear what's your what's your list one to uh, one to eleven. All right, I'm going to give you my definitive list. The controversy begins. Return of the Jedi number one. I do not begrudge you of that. Number Return of the Jedi two, is a phenomenal movie. It's an optimistic movie. I love it. Number two, Revenge of the Sith. This is purely nostalgia for me. I was 15. I went and saw that movie in theaters with my friends. It's got a special place in my heart. Number three, The Empire Strikes Back. It is a perfect Star Wars movie by all intents mm-hmm. and purposes. Number four, A New Hope. Number five, The Phantom Menace. Number mm-hmm. six, Rogue One. Seven, Solo. Number eight, The Force Awakens. Number nine, The Last Jedi. After that, number 10, Attack of the Clones, episode two. I, I do not like that movie. No, there, you'll, you'll find some similarities in my list for that one. I think and it's very important. And the bottom of the barrel is Rise of Skywalker, episode nine. So I, I hear you. We've only got about a minute left. I'm going to try to kind of walk through mine because I think you'll find some similarities here. I think A New Hope is the best one. Mm. I think the premise of it, I think, is a sci-fi movie. I think the score... And just the, the entire aspect of the show is so well done. I, can, I could watch A New Hope pretty much on a loop. Um, Empire Strikes Back is an excellent movie. I have to place it at number two just because I think the while it drags in the middle just a little bit, I think that that doesn't get talked about enough. There's that like mid-drag in the movie. The ending, the last half hour of the movie is some of the best of, of that cinema can offer. Revenge of the Sith and then Return of the Jedi. I love Return of the Jedi. I just think I like Revenge of the Sith more for the same kind of nostalgia reasons you do. That opening sequence where you're like the battle over Coruscant is just, it's unreal, man. It's phenomenal. Rogue One, after that, I love Rogue One. I think it's a great movie. In fact, I'm probably getting ready to watch it again here soon. Then The Phantom Menace, and then Attack of the Clones. I think Attack of the Clones is probably my least favorite out mm-hmm. of all of the, the mainline six um force awakens after that good try but kind of ruined the sequel universe solo i hate um i actually would probably throw solo at like 13 if i could but i'm putting it there because i hate the rise of skywalker and the last jedi more now i put the rise of skywalker above last place last jedi because i think abrams was backed into a bit of a corner not knowing what he could do after rian johnson trashed the universe um now again abrams didn't do himself any favors but this is, I don't know, when you have three different directors write the three different movies without really any overarching guidance, that sequel trilogy was kind of doomed from the start. Doomed from the start is a good way to put it. And uh, for most people, those movies end up down at the bottom of those rankings. But one day we'll have to debate this whole solo thing because uh, I think you're wrong. Oh, we will. We will. Unfortunately, we are kind of running a little over. Allison's going to cut me off and start throwing knives at me. Thanks for hopping on for what you're watching, Stephen. You are listening to the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIBC. It's the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIBC. Feels like I'm losing it. Good evening and welcome back to the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIBC. Uh, the Israel Hamas war is still very hot. There's a lot that's going on, a lot of things that are flying around regarding information, disinformation. And then, of course, how every country's populace is reacting to the conflict. Joining us is Robert Greenway. He's the director for the Center of National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Good to have you on, sir. Glad you can hopefully clear a little bit of the most recent updates up for us. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. So kind of give us a quick outline, if you can. Where is the war at this present point? 
So the ceasefire uh, enabling hostage exchange broke down because, not surprisingly, Hamas violated the terms a number of different fronts, not least of which was another terrorist attack conducted against innocent civilians in Jerusalem. Uh, and in any case, Israel has now resumed offensive operations, and unfortunately, Hamas has also done so and launched rockets back into civilian-occupied areas right. of, uh, of Israel, where many Americans, of course, reside as well. Uh, Israel's focus has now shifted to not just northern Gaza, and it's a small area we're talking about, but Gaza City itself is in the northern portion. It's the most densely populated part. But southern Gaza has Khan Yunus, and that's where operations are now commenced. And as you may recall, and your listeners may know, that Israel's first act was to sort of cut Gaza in half and allow only a humanitarian channel connecting the two. And that persists. And now Israel is conducting, again, operations in both fronts. And the object there is to constrict uh, what is now really surrounded areas and shift the civilian populations to areas where they are uh, less exposed to risk and can concentrate on high-value targets like leadership and infrastructure, the rockets that are continuing to barrage Israel, as we talked about, and hopefully gain enough information on the location of the remaining hostages so that they can be recovered. Right. One of the, the points of horror for me is, again, thinking about Gaza City and having to fight house to house. Obviously, urban warfare is terrifying, um, and it has been since its uh, increasing uh, scope, obviously, in the 20th century as it became kind of a mainstay. Something I did see, and sorry, just the, the combat uh, engineer side of me just it absolutely loves, is that Israel, I'm seeing reports that Israel has begun to flood uh, the Hamas terror tunnels with water, like several different pumping sites directly from the Mediterranean Sea. Is this true, and, and how extensive, if so? It is, and I think part of that is tunnels that have already been um, uh, in terrain where they've already seized control, where they're clearly comfortable that there are no, there's no probability that there are hostages in those, and it's just Hamas infrastructure. And one, they're making them unusable, and two, of course, it saves them the risk of having to put soldiers uh, and service members into those tunnels, right? Which you obviously you would not want, no one would want to do. No, I'm getting unless like, you absolutely had to. Very strong Vietnam. Uh, flashbacks in, in regard to, again, the, the, the horrible tunnel systems. I just, to flooding, to, again, to flood it directly from the Mediterranean Sea is, is brilliant. I mean, it really is. And obviously, you know, you don't want hostages to be in a situation where those hostages are being hidden down there. But what a way to sure up that situation. I mean, you know, the Hamas crew doesn't exactly have access to scuba gear that we've seen. So it's good to see limited access <coughs> underground, at least in some portions of the region. Yeah, no, it's an efficient way to do business and, un and unnecessary uh, under the circumstances. Mm. Look, the Hamas has got to be destroyed. There's no way in which they could be allowed to continue to threaten Israel. And we've seen with the horrific butchering of men, women, and children. And now the stories we're getting from the hostages that have been returned to Israel, and unfortunately too few Americans, which is a, is a little hard to understand how the United States can participate in negotiations and not get our people back, is really inexplicable to me. But at the same time, the hostages that are coming back have just as horrific stories about what is happening to them in detention uh, as they are uh, with the incidents of October the 7th themselves. So the abuse, torture, rape, uh, systemic uh, and just horrific conditions are being replayed. 
and many of these still have family members in custody. Right. And we're talking about uh, you know toddlers and the elderly that are being returned in the first rounds of hostages. It just goes to show what Israel is up against and, frankly, what the United States is up against because we're not observers. We're participants. They killed Americans, too. Right. And along those lines, one of the questions that I have, and I'm pretty sure that I probably know the unfortunate answer here, do you think that some of the hostages whose family members are still on the inside have been threatened, you know, if you tell people what went on here, then we're going to make things that much more difficult for those that are still on the inside? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, is there anything beyond the pale of, of, of individuals that would kill infants, uh, would, would kill pregnant women and the infants they were carrying. There, there are no boundaries here. So, of course, that's true. And we should recognize that the individuals returned are not telling us everything as a result of fear for what may happen to those that remain in custody. So uh, there's no question uh, that that is the case. Uh, on with Robert Greenway, uh, director of the Center for National Defense at the Heritage Foundation. So as a, as a former Special Forces man, uh, to ask you kind of a, a more military-aligned question here. Do you think that Israel is starting to move to a point where they are uh, kind of commencing operations without perhaps as much ear to the United States since the Biden administration has kind of uh, started to get pussyfooted, for lack of a better term? Uh, I'm curious because at some point, whereas Israel doesn't exactly have, like the United States, we have our Department of Defense that is very defense-oriented. In this case, Israel really seems to be uh, going for broke to say, do you actually see um, officers in the IDF being allowed to actually prosecute with you know, full authority in some of these regions? Look, I think Israel understands the imperative. I think they also understand it's imperative they maintain a close relationship with the United States, right. and that includes every element, including the Defense Department. And I think they're trying to walk a very fine line and prosecute the objectives they know they must do and mm -hmm. for which there is is universal support within Israel. And again, remember, they went through some divisive times on judicial reform. Absolutely. But on this, they are completely united. And the October 7th attack galvanized just absolute disgust for Hamas. And so there's enormous support for this. I think right now, uh, when they re recalled the negotiating team from, from Qatar after the collapse of the ceasefire because of Hamas violations, I think they are now fully committed to execution. I think the challenge now is to have the United States play the role that only the U.S. can play, and that is to prevent escalation. The goal here is allow Israel to focus on getting Gaza complete, destroying Hamas as fast as possible, and the least impact. The longer this goes on, the worse it is for everybody. The faster we can conclude it, the better, we'll, better off we'll all be. We need to prevent escalation so this doesn't become, as it is starting to become, a much broader regional escalation. And U.S. ships just attacked in the Red Sea. Right. Three ships were hit by cruise missiles, one nearly sunk. It's already starting to escalate. It's our job, I think, uh, and it's to our benefit to keep this from escalating. One of the concerns that I saw from an individual who's more familiar with shipping over in that part of the region has suggested probably the uh, or has suggested a high likelihood of perhaps private military organizations getting involved uh, the, as further as this draws out. And obviously, you know, a lot of private military uh, organizations um, and mercenary groups are looking for individuals that have, you know, been in the big sandbox before, things like that. Do you see it not just in, in the naval conflict, you know, between the Houthis and the mess that's becoming a bowl of spaghetti over there? Do you see on land any opportunity for private military organizations to be involved? I haven't seen a lot of reports on that yet, uh, but I know that there's been some question as to whether, you know, external military groups will start to get involved on the ground as well as in the sea. 
Well, so they're in the region already, but I don't think Israel has an interest nor a history of employing outside forces to augment. Um, but look, they're, they're in the region already, and the biggest employer is Russia. And so the Wagner Group is the most notorious example of this. Right. And of course, they're present in Syria. They're making inroads in Africa, even after Perozhkin's untimely demise under mysterious circumstances, which yeah. are not terribly mysterious. Um, we can see that the presence of these groups are there. It's a cash carry business. There's high demand for it. But uh, Israel is not prone to do it, and I don't suspect they're going to change course. On the maritime front, you're right. Commercial shipping may increase security. Somali pirates used to be an issue. Uh, and now, of course, we're dealing with Iranian-sponsored pirates. But when mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, military is attacked, as we have been, uh, the military has to respond. We can't outsource the response to it. So for us, right. we've got to put this back into a box as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's very frustrating to kind of see the Navy's hands tied a little bit and just playing the, the self-defense game. It's very frustrating, especially knowing a couple of naval officers that uh, I've watched many an Army-Navy game with um, to, to kind of sit back and watch uh, then be kicked repeatedly in the shins um, and kind of not be allowed to full exercise. I, well, I'd love to dig into that. We'll have to maybe have you back on another time to talk about that. Yeah. Finally, here, just in the last 30 seconds uh, to go, what are we looking for next? I know Israel's been you know, posting pictures of the leaders of Hamas saying this many down, this many to go. Those of us that are watching the war from abroad, what's the next thing that we're looking for in this brutal war? I think Hamas's uh, uh, membership are going to are going to be their family members are going to be collecting on life insurance if they have it. I think the real risk here is escalation. So if Israel becomes deeply committed and the U.S. doesn't prevent escalation, we could see Hezbollah launching a large-scale offensive, indirect fire at Israel, and Iraq, Syria, and Yemen could accelerate, expand, all at the direction and control of Iran, unless the United States confronts Iran and puts this to, uh, and stops it immediately. I think that's the risk, and I think that's the reality. And again, look, 30% of the world's oil, 25% of the world's gas, 25% of the world's shipping and internet traffic flow through the area. We don't need global disruption at that scale, but that's the risk if we don't stop it now. Absolutely. Robert Greenway, Director for the Center of National Defense uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for hopping on, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. You are listening to the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC. It's the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC. Good evening and welcome back to the Tony Kinnick cast on 93 WIBC. The remaining presidential uh, candidates for the Republican Party, um, that is the exact same group that we had last time up on stage, is meeting again tonight in Alabama. And covering that event is Tyler O'Neill, editor over at The Daily Signal, kind of heading up the crew that's tackling that mess. How's it going, man? Hey, doing well. How are you? Just ready for another uh, dumpster fire. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm expecting, because with the same cast on stage, this is turning out to be less of a let's look at different policies and more of a all right, you know, roundhouse match part two. And we can start with any of the candidates here. We can start with the Vivek and, and Haley debacle. We can start with, you know, DeSantis kind of levying out, you know, different answers based on governance. I want to start with Christie, though. I don't want to start with Christie on, on like jokes specifically. What's Christie trying to get out of this? There's no path for him to win any state whatsoever. Why is he up here? Like, what what's the real move? Secretary of. Yeah, I mean, he didn't. He didn't have. He never got his position at the DOJ under the last Trump administration. So who who knows what he's he's going for right now? He said he wanted 
to go mano a mano to Trump in these debates. That's why he said he was running for president. And so far that hasn't panned out. And he's nowhere near these polls. He's nowhere near competitive. Um, I think he, he just is in there because he senses this is his last chance and he's going to go for it. And... Oh, but it hurts. I mean, it hurts to watch because he gets up there and, and no one really cares what he has to say. There's like polite applause when he says something that the crowd agrees with. Other than that, it's just kind of awkward. And, but that's not the biggest thing that I'm looking toward tonight. Uh, so as you remember in the last debate, you had Haley, who was kind of the tether ball between the two players, DeSantis and Ramaswamy. And Vivek didn't actually go after DeSantis this time it, very much at all because Haley was just the perfect establishment target uh, that, that both DeSantis and um, Ramaswamy classified her that way. And since then, the attacks on Haley have continued. And, and Haley's doubled down on some things, even so. So what do you see tonight? Because the question is leading up into Iowa. Iowa is the thing that everyone's kind of starting to angle their momentum towards, even in the debates. This is the last chance for Haley and DeSantis to pull something away to be considered useful against Trump. I, I mean, I know there's New Hampshire a little bit in play. What's the, uh, what's, what do we see tonight? Do we see Haley mixing things up and trying to, you know, move the target away from her? What's the plan? Haley's a, con a convenient punching bag, uh, partially because she's staking out this this moderate stance on a whole bunch of issues that DeSantis kind of has the strong, you know, Trumpy, not Trump lane. And Vivek is trying to do the same thing. So I think it it is interesting that Vivek doesn't take a lot of shots at Trump, at, at DeSantis, because it seems like they're natural competitors for kind of a similar lane. But yeah, I think most likely they're just going to pile up on Haley again. And what does Haley do? Haley doesn't have a lot of options. Um, she's probably going to try to clarify some things, try to dodge some attacks that she's anticipating. Well, there's a lot to clarify. I mean, goodness gracious, she was on uh, the DeSantis campaign has been attacking her over um, a statement that she made on you know major media in which she seemed to indicate that... Uh, 12-year-olds who wanted to seek puberty blockers and other dangerous medications. If their parents were okay with it, then then I guess she was. that was a decision for the parents. That was kind of her move, at least that DeSantis has been hitting her on. I know Vivek has hit her on like some social media policy. Both candidates have hit her on China, uh, not to mention the whole social media anonymous account thing that's happened since then. Do you think that Haley's going to spend the evening clarifying? Because the, if I was the guy that was doing the coaching, if I was in the corner with the towel, getting the boxer ready to get out there, I would say point in a different direction and lead people where to go. Are any candidates going to do that tonight? I mean, DeSantis has done that before, but I mean, what's the, do you actually see that? Or is this more slap fighting in a sitcom? <laughs> I, I'd expect more slap fighting in the sitcom. I don't know. <sighs> what Haley's because Haley's in such a tough spot, right? She's got all of this establishment strength. Now she got, yeah. I mean, the Coke, the Coke brothers is, is nothing to shrug off. Yeah. So she, she has kind of the, the different lane, the non Trump and not, you know, the, the older, older style. I'm not sure exactly right. She's not quite a neocon, but she's mostly, you know, it's that neocon, like old. I've, I've heard her framed as very George Bushian, very early aughts kind of Cheney Bush style rhetoric. Um, yeah. and, and I think if I plan, I actually have a prediction. One question that is going to be asked tonight 
either by Vivek or by DeSantis is, can you name one accomplishment from your time as governor in South Carolina? And I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what she brings to the table for that. She might mention the budget, but even that's probably a little thin. I'm just interested to see that Haley has kind of become the punching bag for these debates because Haley's not necessarily the candidate to beat in Iowa. And I mean, Vivek knows that. I mean, Haley knows that DeSantis knows that, but we're not actually seeing these candidates, you know, throw punches at Trump. Who's not at the debate. I, if so, kind of a hypothetical here, Ron with Tyler O'Neill from the daily signal, who will be covering the next GOP presidential primary debate tonight. Do you see if Iowa goes to either Haley or DeSantis, or let's again, just throwing out hypotheticals, Iowa goes to DeSantis New Hampshire goes for Haley. Do you see Trump actually come to the debate stage at that point? Ooh. It's a, it's a serious Hail yeah. Mary throw of a yeah. hypothetical. I think, I think he does. I, I think he eventually comes at that point. And I think he probably pulls a power move. He'll tell the, the GOP, like, I will come to a debate, but you have to hold it where I'm strongest. You have to hold it you know, near Mar-a-Lago or something like that. Because Ooh. Trump Trump won't Trump won't come unless he has some sort of win he can push with that. But if he loses both Iowa and New Hampshire, then he has to take the take the situation seriously. Now, if the if the GOP says, no, we have a schedule, you know, we're we're not gonna go at your beck and call, then he's probably not going to show up for the next debate. Um, I mean, that's the question. I mean, that's kind of the question that, that funnels down here is that anytime Trump is told he has to do something that just makes him kind of buck against it harder. I no, do I actually see that happening? I, I honestly don't know I I'm caught in a party who believes polls when they're relevant and then doesn't believe polls when they don't like the answer. So, uh, you know, oh, yeah. kind of a struggle. Tyler, thank you very much for hopping on Tyler O'Neill editor over at the daily signal covering the debates tonight. Uh, appreciate it, man. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you guys for joining us this evening. You can find the podcast over on all podcast platforms and join us next evening in the live stream. It's going to be a doozy. Thank you for listening to the Tony Kinnacast on 93 WIBC.